I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhance Life with Music, a look at music's effect on our everyday lives. Today, we are diving into the world of music publishing and royalties, the money artists make when people or businesses use their music, whether the music is streamed, sold in CD form, played in a restaurant, used in an ad, played on TV. Song Trust is the world's largest global royalty collection service. It helps artists both know and access what they're owed. Song Trust represents over 2 million songs. Joining me today is Anna Bond, Song Trust's Senior Director of Global Business Development. Anna works with record labels, music publishers, and music technology companies to streamline the collection of royalties for songwriters and other music rights holders. Welcome to Enhanced Life with Music, Anna. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Well, Anna, I discovered pretty quickly in preparing for this conversation that the topic of music royalties is very complex. So I'm going to do my best to keep us out of the weeds in this conversation and stick to more of a general overview of the different channels of payments that are used to compensate artists for their work. SongTrust website has an excellent glossary of music publishing terms that I found hugely helpful and educational. That glossary gives the following definition for royalties. Royalties are payments made on a per-use basis. In the context of music publishing, royalties refers to the income earned through the use of a song. This can include album sales, digital downloads, streams, radio airplay, and a host of other forms through which songs earn income for songwriters and music publishers. Now, Anna, I know that there are two different kinds of royalties, performance royalties and mechanical royalties. Before we explain the difference to listeners, I'm wondering, are these the two main categories of royalties for the average songs that we tend to hear, say, on the radio? Or are there other categories we should know about? So performance royalties and mechanical royalties are the two primary types of publishing royalties. Um, now, when we're talking about, you know, what record labels or self-release artists are generating on the master side, that's a completely different conversation. Another type of royalty that's particularly relevant and, and obviously increasingly so is the type of royalty that's paid by YouTube or, or another type of kind of micro video platform like your TikTok mm. um, and like Facebook video. So those are those pay a, a unique type of royalty that's kind of like a performance mechanical hybrid uh, mm. that ends up kind of slotting out as performance and mechanical, but you know, technically the type of usage is, is quite different from those two. Um, another type of royalty that's actually on the master side, but is often grouped with publishing because it's kind of ephemeral and it's, it's one of those micro penny types is digital performance royalties, uh, which are known as neighboring rights outside of the U S and this is a master side royalty that is paid to the master owner, as well as the performing artist, for something like an online radio play, like a Pandora play, or um, outside of the U.S., broadcast radio also pays these master side royalties that go to their split between the master owner, which is often a record label, the performing artist, and then a small amount of, of the neighboring right royalty goes to any other supporting uh, performers that appear on the recording. Okay. But as far as publishing administration, 
performance royalties, mechanical royalties, and then those, uh, you know, kind of sometimes we call them micro sync royalties are, are really your main, your main types. Well, for the pay grade that I'm at (laughs) and most of our listeners will stick to performance royalties and mechanical royalties for today's conversation. Absolutely. Can, can you just give like a general overview of the difference between those two for listeners? Sure. Absolutely. So as the name implies, a performance royalty is is earned when your song uh, composition is publicly performed. Now, that could be a broadcast radio play that could be played in a in a cafe or a bar like you'd mentioned. That could be you live performing the song. It could be someone else covering your song in a live performance. Mm. Um, Any of those types of performances are going to earn uh, a performance royalty. The mechanical royalty side is is a physical or digital reproduction. So if you make an LP, if you make a cassette, if you make a CD, that's a real obvious mechanical royalty you pay for each of those sold. Same with MP3s. An MP3 download for this for mechanical royalties is kind of considered a physical format. Now streaming, because it has to you know do its own thing, actually earns both a performance and a mechanical royalty because the nature of a stream is kind of both a public performance, right? It's an ephemeral one-time performance each time you stream it, but it's also a reproduction because it is reproducible as many times as you'd like on the streaming platform. Okay. Well, that answers one of my other questions is I saw on your website that music streamed on platforms like Spotify generates both performance and mechanical. Absolutely. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, my understanding is that all royalties are not created equally. So there's a different value assigned to a royalty when, say, I listen to like one of Taylor Swift's new folklore songs alone Mm -hmm. in my car, compared to if a a store like Target were to play that same song in all of its stores. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And I do feel like Taylor's new record is a very alone in the car record. So I I appreciate that context. So if you're streaming the song for individual play, Taylor is going to earn the performance and mechanical royalties from that stream. But if Target or a bar or anyone is playing the song publicly in a a physical location, uh, a retail location or any any type of physical location that sells something, they're going to have to pay uh, additional premiums to the performing rights society. So that's going to be BMI, ASCAP. CSAC um, or, you know, any of the ex-U.S. societies would charge it overseas. Um, And it's generally calculated based on square footage, number of speakers and number of locations. So if you're a tiny little cafe, you've got like a boombox set up in the corner. You're going to pay a lot less than like Target, who's probably got, you know, 100 speakers per store and however many thousands of stores they have. And they're paying uh, those fees uh, for usage of the compositions controlled by the different performing rights societies. And they're paying those on an annual basis, um, which are then divided up accordingly to the to the songwriters represented by that society. Wow. So if you have a little cafe with a boombox set up in the corner, how are they even having that amount of money factored in terms of like how much they pay and who figures that out and who do they pay? Well, they generally don't end up catching all those guys, right? Um, but technically, you know, to be on the right side of the PROs, if you're, if you're doing anything in a public space and you're playing music out loud, 
you should be paying the PROs. That's their, you know, that's the rule. Um, and they do probably not during COVID, but they do send, uh, you know, auditors around to different local businesses in different cities and, uh, you know, assess them X amount of, of annual fee based on the number of speakers, based on their square footage, and then send an invoice. I've, I've had that happen to me at a couple of retail jobs where like the BMI oh. person came and we're just like, what's going on? And there's like, you owe us $800. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> and those people that you're talking about who go around, are yeah. they representing the PROs, which we should just yeah. explain that performing rights organizations. Can you just sure. quickly explain what that is? Yeah, so a performing rights organization is uh, an organization who collects performance royalties for writers. So writers can sign up with a performing rights organization in their home country. Uh, ASCAP and BMI are the two big ones in the U.S. And, um, you know, they're responsible for tracking and accounting all of the different types of uh, public performance royalties owed by individual writers. So whether that's a radio broadcast, whether it's, um, you know, a Spotify stream, whether it is this, your portion of, you know, cafe X's $500 a year, you know, payment, all of that stuff is divvied up uh, by the performance societies. Okay. So song trust is not a PRO. No, we work closely with the PROs to make okay. sure that we are registering and uh, collecting from them as well as collecting from other sources on behalf of our clients. Okay. So ASCAP, BMI, and so forth have representatives who will go out and sort of audit different yes. organizations. Okay. Absolutely. And when you talked about any business is required to be paying those kinds of royalties, does mm -hmm. that include any kind of like an office space who's not open for retail business? They're not open to the public in that sense, but say they have an office with, you know, 20 people, 100 people in their office, and they're playing the radio at the office. If you're not selling something, or, you know, if you couldn't be characterized as a place of business, uh, where the music is part of the purchase, like, if you're in a retail store, and they're playing really cool music, mm -hmm. you might want to stay there longer. Or if you're in a bar, and they're playing really great music, you're going to want to stay there longer. So the idea is that the music is helping you make money as a business. Okay. Within an office, you might get more productivity if you're playing like really aggressive techno. But um, it's not the same. <laughs> it's not considered the same as a as a public performance when it comes to the PROs. Okay, so for an example, an engineering firm, they're putting together plans and drawings, and they're a consultant, they have clients and vendors who may come into their place of work, but it's not like it's necessarily open to the public. A company like that, are they required to pay business fees for playing music? I mean, I don't think BMI is going to come audit them, but I'm sure they wouldn't say no if, if those guys okay. wanted to give them some money. It. Okay. <laughs> but it really is. It's really retail spaces that are, you know, the consideration for this type of for this type of payment. Got it. Okay. Tell us about the various parties that earn royalties. So there's like the music composer, mm -hmm. the composer of the lyrics, the primary artist, the backup artist. Tell us about some of those different parties. So when it comes to publishing, it's really focused on the songwriter. Um, and that can be the, you know, composer of the music. It can be the lyric writer. Uh, either of them is going to be considered a songwriter. Um, often a primary artist who is working, a recording artist who's working with a number of songwriters, they'll all get a piece 
of the finished song. But publishing administration and, and publishing rights are really focused on collecting and, and managing rights for songwriters. When it comes to you know stuff like the master rights or like I mentioned, neighboring rights and digital performance royalties, that's when recording artists, record labels, and, and your uh, backup artists, additional performers get their piece of that pie. Um, but when it comes to publishing, it's really about songwriters, it's about compositions. And we get a lot of questions about the way that things are split up between the composer of the music and the lyric writer. Mm -hmm. Generally, once you've written a song together and you decide what your splits are, you're both basically 50%. Like if if you and I write a song together and you just wrote the words and I just wrote the music, Mm -hmm. once we enter our splits as 50%, we register the song with ASCAP or BMI, we register the song with our publisher. There's no there's no division in ownership. You own half the lyrics and half the music and I own half the lyrics and half the music. Okay. So, you know, it's, there's an argument maybe to be made if you decide that you want to do a line of t-shirts that just feature the lyrics. Um, But generally it's considered pretty true that the lyrics wouldn't really be what they are without the the music and the music wouldn't really be what it is without the lyrics, which is why when you get a bunch of people in a writer's room it, it can be quite tough to determine the correct splits. You know, if you get if you get four members of a band, a lot of people will say, but why are we giving the drummer 25%? Well, if you didn't have a drummer, it would have been a lot harder for you to write a song because, yeah. because, because the beat ends up being a very important part of the process once you take it out. So it is, you know, song splits are one of the, especially when you're getting into like a big pop song um, or a big like hip hop or electronic uh, composition where there's a ton of different people involved mm-hmm. and everyone, you know, there's a hook, you know, there's a, there's a beat writer, there's a, there's a sample maybe it's, and it's, it gets tough to figure out like who really gets what percentage when you're talking about there's nine people in the room. Um, are we just splitting it evenly or you know, someone has a bigger name. Are they, they're the one that brought everyone together. Are we going to give them, you know, 25% the rest of us split 75%. It's, it's a little bit of an art and it's definitely something that can cause a lot of conflicts. Mm -hmm. Um, if you don't get the split sorted out as soon as you're leaving that writing room or leaving that studio. Sure. Once it starts to make money, that's when the fight starts. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. So those song splits, are those negotiated separately for every song? It depends. I mean, if you're, say you're a band, you're four people. Yeah. You probably will decide ahead of time, okay, let's just do 25% splits. Okay. And then maybe the singer for one song that's just, you know, her and acoustic guitar will uh-huh. say, guys, I'm going to, I want to have the songwriting on this one. Okay. Okay. But when you're crafting a pop hit, it's a very different experience. You know, you're writing a song for a purpose and you're in a room with a lot of people that you might not know. Um, You may have worked with before, but you don't have an existing kind of business unit together. Uh So that's when um, it really becomes, you know, a little more, uh, it can become a little more contentious just because there aren't those pre-existing relationships. And especially when you're a songwriter, you're not benefiting from the merch. You're not benefiting from ticket sales. You're not benefiting from, you know, television performance beyond, you know, your, your performance royalties. So 
songwriters who aren't performing artists definitely want to make sure that they're able to kind of capitalize on their contribution, even though so much of of what they do is behind the scenes. Okay. So when you said that the parties that earn the royalties, that's primarily about the, the composer, the songwriters. Is that because the songwriters get a bigger slice of the pie than the person, the artist who's actually performing it and their band and so forth? So the performing artist is going to benefit on the master side. Generally, uh, you know, most of the master royalties are going to the performing artist, you know, via their record label. Sometimes you'll have a producer that gets points on the back end of master sales, as well as, uh, you know, getting some songwriting credit. But, you know, the, the songwriting royalties are really for the, the actual songwriter. And so if you make a, if you have a huge hit, but it's a cover, you know, you'll end up not benefiting on the song composition side at all. But the idea is you benefit on the master side. It's um, who was it that Mark Weezer, Weezer band did a, oh, a, well, a whole album of covers, uh, including like Toto's Africa and a whole bunch of yes. other great, well-known songs. So, well, and they know that they're going to benefit a lot on the master side. So Mark Allman, Soft Cell, his biggest hit was uh, Tainted Love, which was a cover. But the B-side of that 45 single was also a cover. So back in the day when this 45 single was the only way you could get Soft Cell's Tainted Love, Mark Allman shot himself in the foot because he didn't benefit on mechanical royalties for that 45 at all because it was an A-side and a B-side that were both covers. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you release a covers album... Um, you know, the songwriting royalties are all going to the original writers. When you're someone like Weezer, you can afford it. Um, but, you know, if you're a newer artist and your breakout single ends up being a cover, then you're in a little bit of a, a, a sticky wicket. Another fun fact about Weezer, though, is once they discovered that you only get paid, and this is a little bit Weezy, um, for 10 songs, like generally in a, in a recording contract, uh, there's the compulsory license. There's the statutory rate for a mechanical royalty, which is about 9.1 cents per song per copy of, of an album. And in the CD era, Weezer knew that this was generally only paid up to 10 songs. For some reason, that's the industry standard. Most contracts say, you know, we'll pay you statutory rate for mechanicals up to 10 songs. So they only put 10 songs on their albums. Okay. And this was like Rivers Cuomo as the main songwriter was like, well, I'm not going to put more songs on if I'm not getting paid mechanical royalties for them. So that's why you'll see early Weezer records only have 10 songs. <laughs> okay. Oh, interesting. <laughs> well, on SongTrust website, it says that there is an estimated $250 million in unclaimed royalties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tell us about that. Yeah. So, uh, and this, this number is pretty disputed, it's very likely to be higher than that. So unclaimed royalties occur when you are not registered with a PRO and your song like earns a performance royalty, say on the radio, or what's very common nowadays, since, you know, streaming became the main way that music is consumed. Mechanical royalties for physical production, right? LPs, CDs, downloads are generally payable by a label to their artist, right? So there isn't another third party that has to get involved. The label pays the mechanicals. It's, it's, you know, within their business model, unless they have a special deal, like some 
some kind of indie labels will do a 50-50 deal where it's a profit split and they don't pay mechanicals. With streaming, streaming mechanicals are specifically paid via uh, mechanical rights organizations or mechanical rights aggregators like Harry Fox or MRI. And those aren't paid automatically. You have to go out and seek those. So a lot of people believe I've signed up with ASCAP, I'm getting all my money, but you're not. If you have any streams um, on Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, Tidal, anything, you have to sign up with HFA, uh, Harry Fox, MRI, or you need a publishing administrator to go collect that stuff for you. Which is because, what trust is, right? Which is exactly what we do. Yeah. Okay. And it's, it's something where education is a huge part of our mission because there are so many people out there who, you know, they might have 10% of a couple of massive songs, right? They were right place, right time. They contributed Mm -hmm. in the studio to a couple of songs that ended up blowing up. They think they're sorted because they're with BMI, but you know, there's all this mechanical royalty revenue out there on the streaming side that they don't realize isn't going to be paid to them by their PRO. They have to go register to collect it. Okay. And I'm sure yeah. that there's different places that you need to go register all over the world. Right. You know, generally you're sorted if you kind of sign up with the the folks in your home country. But yeah, the international publishing picture is another reason that there's so much, uh, so many royalties that are out there that haven't been allocated. And, you know, part of it is these are organizations that are often over a hundred years old. Most of them are doing a great job of kind of keeping up with, with the world of technology that we live in. They've kind of had to modernize relatively quickly. I mean, when, when streaming took over, um, you're suddenly dealing with a lot more lines of data, right? And these organizations had to modernize very quickly and, There isn't an international data standard yet. I know that's something that a lot of people, including a lot of folks within SongTrust, are working toward. But, you know, until there is an international standard for the way that publishing data is submitted, the way that, you know, song data is ingested, there will always be mismatches. Sure. And if you're, say, you're an ASCAP member... Um, and you're not signed up with an administrator, you're relying on ASCAP to collect your global royalties for you. You have a radio hit in the UK. Uh Um, So PRS, the excellent uh, performing rights organization in the UK, is going to work with ASCAP to get you your money. But any data mismatch is going to really delay it, if not entirely prevent the money from flowing through. And you can see, if we've got all these different data standards, there's a tremendous potential for folks who aren't directly registered at all these different societies to miss out on some money. Yeah, well, I mean, to me, that's a huge selling point right there for Song Trust or some of these other organizations is you collect music publishing royalties globally all in one place and songwriters don't need to be registering and all over the place, which, you know, the more we talk about this, the more it reminds me of medical insurance. (laughs) There's so many different (laughs) facets to it that... It's like, you know what? Just let me pay somebody to take care of it for me. (laughs) Right, exactly. So many different places that you need to kind of, you know, 
send uh-huh. your name and address and your billing information and your sure. <laughs> all your charts. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You mentioned that Song Trust is really focused on education. And mm-hmm. one thing in a little that I've gotten to know of Song Trust that I thought was that I noticed that was really neat is you do have these free virtual music publishing workshops. Yes. And probably some other ones too. That's the the one that caught my eye. And mm-hmm. I actually forwarded that to a guest that we just had recently on the show. It was a teenager who mm-hmm. had some extra time with quarantine and used it to finish off a bunch of songs that she had written over the course of seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade. I love that. And yeah, finished them off, created an album, put it on, on Spotify. And so I just kind of interviewed her about her experience. And when I saw that email from Song Trust about the Music Publishing 101 workshop, mm-hmm. I forwarded it to her and she did take advantage of it and said it was really helpful. So I I can imagine that there are a lot of educational opportunities with Song Trust that you have to offer. Yeah, the music publishing one-on-one webinar is one that we offer regularly once or twice a week. Um, But we also are very lucky to have a lot of great clients who are writers, who are performers, and lawyers, business managers. And we'll often get some of those clients to come and advise on different aspects of kind of a career in the music industry, Uh, about songwriting. So we're really fortunate that we're able to provide resources about you know, publishing administration and the basics of publishing are the core, but also about other aspects of songwriting and of kind of nourishing your career as a songwriter. And we have those webinars really, really often as well. They're all kind of, you know, listed on our website, uh, our email newsletter subscribers get them. But, you know, publishing for a very long time, and I think this is one reason that so many people in the music industry are afraid of it. I mean, I was on the record label side for a really long time, about 15 years. And I, like my face just kind of fell whenever anyone talked about music publishing, because it seemed so complicated. Mm -hmm. It seemed so impossible to understand. And I didn't 100% have to understand it. So I was, I was busy with other things, but it's, it's always had this rarefied air. And part of the reason, um, you know, not to put too fine a point on it is that when independent songwriters don't collect their royalties, that money goes to the majors and it goes to their top performers. That's what people call the black box or reallocated royalties. You have about two to three years to collect those unmatched royalties Mm. before they get reallocated. And the people they get reallocated to are the people who need that money the least. Um, okay. you know, so there is hard. some kind of a retroactive ability to kind of claw back and get some of that money for, for performers or songwriters. Yeah. That's a huge part of what we do. Yeah, you can usually collect back two or three years. Sometimes it's longer. But yeah, if you don't collect them, they go to existing superstars. It's part of their contract mm. with their major publishers. Like I get this much of okay. kind of the black box royalties. Oh, okay. So it's a huge piece of, of why I believe in what we do. It's because we're educating independent songwriters so that they're able to collect their money. It's a thousand dollars. It's going to mean a lot more to this independent mm-hmm. songwriter than it's going to mean to Drake, you know? Sure. Sure. Well, and song trust does work with over 300,000 songwriters, including sure. the, the brand new indie up and coming songwriters and also the Grammy winners. Yeah. 
So if, if listeners are listening to this and thinking about kind of getting involved in some more songwriting or composing, performing, definitely something to check out for sure. And Song Trust is not just for songwriters. You represent artists, bands, producers, managers, anyone yeah. else? Anyone who works with songwriters, who is a songwriter, you know, even if you're a performing artist, if you have song credit, you are a songwriter. Same with producers. A lot of producers get taken out of the conversation when we're talking about songwriting royalties, but you know, 10 or 20% of a, of a big song is pretty significant. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're not getting offered necessarily a big traditional publishing deal, but they still got to collect those royalties. Mm. Um, And so we have a ton of producer clients. And in fact, uh, Atlanta, because their scene, their hip hop scene is so grassroots and there are so many people involved in kind of studio culture there. That's our second biggest client market next Mm. to New York. Mm, Because there are just so many people out there who they have royalties that they're owed, but there's no, you know, real motivation from the top down in the publishing industry to get that money to the people who've actually earned it. Mm -hmm. um, Because there's only really the motivation to keep it in the hands of the folks in charge. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Song Trust is really focused on that kind of grassroots and granular outreach um, to make sure that we're able to reach people. Mm hmm. Yeah. When I was looking at the mechanical royalties information, there were some little fun tidbits that I saw in there that I would never have thought about, really. And it was talking about how the copyrighted audio material includes not only CDs and records and tape recordings and music videos, some of the stuff that we've already talked about, and that's a little bit more obvious, but also musical toys and mm-hmm. computer games, ringtones, yeah. any other like fun little stories of little gadgets we wouldn't have thought about that have used copyrighted music. Absolutely. Anything. I mean, those birthday cards that sing a song to oh, you yeah. that thankfully are less popular than they used to be. Uh-huh. But yeah, anytime that a copyrighted piece of music is used and is you know in a phys- is physically reproduced, whether it is like you're saying a toy a birthday card, a keychain, like you press one of the keychain and it plays a song. Um, there's a reason that those things tend to use public domain songs, so they don't have okay. to pay uh, pay the additional royalties. But it's absolutely true. It's not just the obvious stuff. It is anytime there's like that physical reproduction angle. Sure. Oh, interesting. When I was reading that, it just brought me back to this kind of dates me a little bit. But I remember those Teddy Ruxpin toys. Oh, yeah, that were popular. I had them. And I was thinking like, I didn't have one personally, but I had a good friend who had one. I was thinking back, oh, I wonder if that played music. I knew he kind of talked, but he probably oh, it definitely music. did. Because I had the Teddy Ruxpin that had a tuxedo and sang love songs. That's oh. normal for like a seven year old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were yeah, there's been some crazy toys <laughs> through the years. Yeah, my kids recently saw a Cupid doll for the first time. Oh wow! And I was like, oh my goodness, I had one of those when I was little, and they're like, that is the weirdest thing ever. <laughs> Uh, well, I'll include the link to SongTrust website Great. for listeners who want to check that out, songtrust.com. I ask all my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, a coda, by sharing a song or a story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Is there a song or story you can share with us today? This is a story. When I was 14 years old in high school, I was, I've always been very into music. I was very into independent music. Um, 
I was 14. I didn't see a ton of live music except like at our local coffee shop. But I went with my high school boyfriend to see George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars. Mm. Um, and I'm from a small town in California called San Luis Obispo. They played the, I think, rec center at Cal Poly, which is our local university. They were about three hours late. They were coming from Santa Barbara. They were very late. This was their reputation. There's a lot of people involved to, to wrangle. And um, I blew past my curfew, I think. They played for like five hours. I think my curfew was midnight. I probably got home at 3 a.m. <laughs> uh, no regrets. It was just one of the most unbelievable experiences of my life just because I had never seen a group of people play so kind of perfectly together. Like obviously these guys have been playing together for decades, but with so much energy and so much spirit and so much just total weirdness, like, and you would see different members of, of obviously George Clinton is incredible, but you'd see different members of the group kind of interacting with the audience in these one-on-one ways, like just with eye contact because they played forever. Like they had to kind of keep this, this exchange going. And honestly, it was, you know, I didn't have a ton of opportunities to see like big artists play live because of being from a small town, but it really was like such a game changer for me and my relationship to music. I became, you know, even more obsessive about it, you know, after that night. And, and I do actually think I was not grounded because I think my parents were so convinced by how powerful the experience was that they were like, okay, don't do it again. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) I did find a picture of the Teddy Ruxpin Tuxedo Love Songs toy that Anna was talking about. You can actually buy it on eBay and Amazon. So if you'd like to take a trip down memory lane or need a white elephant gift, check it out. There's also a a picture in the show notes of me with my Cupid doll. Uh, I saw this picture at my parents' house when I was back visiting this summer. And I have to say, I can see why my kids think it is such a weird toy. Here in the U.S., we are in our last month of summer. One thought that I had recently was, what song would best represent the infamous summer 2020? Let me know if you think of any good song candidates for this dubious honor. I recently encouraged my piano students to create their own original composition to memorialize summer 2020, I asked them to think about what this song might sound like and what it would be titled. I'll include a resource in the show notes that I sent them. It's a step-by-step composition instruction sheet from Teach Piano Today. Let me know if you create a song. I'd love to hear the song and the title you chose. You can connect with me on social media, email, and my website. All links, as well as today's show notes, can be found at mpetersonmusic.com slash podcast slash episode 56. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next week, may your life be enhanced with music.